Uh, if you have lived in New York City any length of time, and as I thought about all of you uh, throughout the course of the week, I, I realized that most of you have been in New York City for quite some time. Uh, you're not newcomers, uh, maybe, maybe to Staten Island, but uh, not to New York City. Uh, so I'm on pretty safe ground when I ask you if you're familiar with the slogan, if you see something, say something. It originated in New York City. Uh, the MTA actually began it in 2010 before the Department of Homeland Security adopted it and made it their official and registered trademark. If you see something, say something. Now, admittedly, uh, the use of that in New York City is to counter acts of terror. Um, and though it's not exactly to counter terror that I use it this morning, it's a very apropos expression to literally describe the shepherds that are out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night because they were doing it. They saw something and they said something. It's a phenomenal word for you and for me today uh, to those unexpectant, lowly and despised character characters, an angel of the Lord appeared to them with the message that a baby had been born, but not just any baby, a baby that's being described, as you heard John read for us, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The only place in the New Testament where those words pile up in one sentence, the savior, Christ, Messiah, the Lord. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The humble shepherds saw something and they said something. So you have got a pretty good feel already in terms of where this is going to go. Because I'm going to be asking you the question, have you seen anything? What have you seen? And then obviously what immediately follows from that is telling. If you see something, say something. The shepherds did. Will you and I, the tender mercy of our God, has come, as we said last week, not only for peasants, and priests, but now also we see the tender mercy of our God coming for shepherds and the whole gamut, the whole societal caste is being brought face to face with this living God, the lowest of the low peasants and shepherds, the highest of the highs, priests, and as we'll see, God willing, next week, prophets as well. Nobody misses out on the message of Christmas. A child has been born, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This morning, in a very simple outline, I want to show you God's merciful providence over first the powerful and then over the weak. It's a paradigm that fits almost the entirety of Scripture, truth be told. So we have in a profound way a microcosm here of the entire Bible narrative that God's merciful providence, you need both, merciful providence, God's reigning over all things, not only over the powerful, as we see in verses 1 to 7, but also over the weak, verses 8 to 20. And here's where it ends where it ends is that the goal of all of God's mercy is God's glory. That, I would love for you to take that home because that's, that's the theme you're going to see running right through this glorious passage today. 
that the goal of God's mercy is God's glory. And there are no exceptions. You don't, you don't have to sit there very long with me and process that. Where God's mercy is displayed is to a rather obvious end. It's to the display of his glory. Yes, it's to fill you with joy. Yes, it's to keep you going, certainly. But you and I are not the center of the universe. God is. And so when God bestows his mercy upon you and me, the view is to the display of the glory of God. If shepherds can do it, you and I can do it. Because we have the same enablement as they did, believe it or not. God's, let's look first at God's merciful providence over the powerful. Last week, I hope, we left with Zechariah's song still ringing in our ears, and perhaps it kept ringing all week. It was a song that proclaimed, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, that the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And we spoke about that for several minutes the sunrise being Jesus Christ, and the implication very clear, like the sun, bright and powerful and warming, has come to those who are in darkness, in the shadow of death, as well as light always helps in the dark to guide your feet into the way of peace. That was the song that came out of the priest's mouth after the Lord had loosed his lips. Luke now takes us literally out to those who are sitting in darkness. Very masterfully put together here by the dear doctor. He takes us out literally to those who are sitting in darkness where radiant light is about to shine. So radiant, as you know throughout all of Scripture, that when an angel shows up, when the Lord shows up, down people go. (laughs) And that's exactly what happens. And they were filled with terror, the Scriptures say. But first, we see God's merciful providence arranging all things for his glory. I don't know about you, but every time I say that sentence, something within me breathes a sigh of relief. It's so easy to get caught up in the negative. It's so easy to see the darkness. You have to work not to see it. At least I find that true of my life. I have to work hard during the course of the week not to be overwhelmed by everything that shows up on my feed, on my phone, by everything that is immediately in front of me on the television, if and when I turn that on, even in conversation. There's no escaping it. My innards breathe a sigh of relief whenever I hear myself saying, we see God's merciful providence arranging all things for his glory. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God is at work even here. Oh, yeah. He is light, and the sunrise has come into this dark world. In those days, verse 3, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I'm sorry, beginning in verse 1, beginning in verse one that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each in his, in his own town. And that includes, obviously, sweeping language here, the whole world, uh, as John and I were talking before the service, the whole world at that time obviously meant primarily the Roman Empire and, and the Caesars were gods. They literally, you, we have inscriptions on, on various things that have been found archaeologically that literally refer to them as a god. So, or, or as a lord. And so you've got this political powerhouse clearing his throat, wanting everybody numbered so he knows who he has in his kingdom. And these governors are his minions that are going to carry this out. And the whole world is called to this. Now, when you have sweeping language like that, you know that all of the characters that we've been talking about are now going to be underneath all of that. So you're expecting some movement here. And it's exactly what you get in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house uh, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, just how matter-of-fact this is. I mean, Matthew spends a whole lot more time talking about the details of the birth of Christ. Luke, not so much. His context is a little bit different. And in just a couple of verses, when the child was born, end of story. But then it unfolds because Luke's got a different eye and a different community to whom he is speaking. In verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. That's it. Two verses. Luke 2, 6, and 7. Oh, and while they were there, more, more language used to describe them getting to Bethlehem than the actual birth. We're talking about the birth of Jesus here. Oh, and while they were there, it's almost, and while they were there, she had a baby. And she was a good mother and wrapped them up, laid them in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. End of story. God arranging the details. Nothing stops God's merciful providence. Nothing interrupts his timing. The politics of God always has and always will prevail over the politics of man. Make sure you understand that because the story of the birth of Jesus is supercharged politically. I've grown older and have heard this text proclaimed, and I've proclaimed it, countless numbers of times. And invariably, you're, you're strained to make it Hallmark-esque. Isn't the baby beautiful? Wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And we have Christmas pageants that do all of that, and we cry over them and so forth. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we do a disservice to the larger story that both gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, want us to understand because what you've got going on here is the interruption of the political realm through the birth of this child. And it's going to be dark. But we need not fear because the sunrise has come. Nothing stops God's merciful providence. Even Caesars and their governors cannot thwart what it is that God wants to accomplish. Hear that. Is there not a word there for us today? 
Nothing interrupts his timing. The politics of God always has and always will prevail over the politics of man. Caesar Augustus, you hear, any, you hear much more about him any, day, in, in, any of these days? How about any of the Caesars? How about Rome? How about Babylon? How about Assyria? Gone. You know who's not gone? God. We know that this is the case because 700 years earlier, 700 years earlier, the time of Isaiah, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, 700 years before this birth, in Micah 5 and verse 2, this was said by the prophet. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see what's going on here? So here, 700 years before Augustus clears his throat, God already says, oh, I got that taken care of. And Augustus becomes, if you please, a pawn in the hand of the Lord to fulfill this prophecy. That was 700 years prior to it happening. Oh, it also happened, if you recall, nine months before it happened as well, because this happened before the birth of the child in Luke chapter 1, a passage we had not looked at yet. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. See how all this links up here? You see how Luke's putting it together? The virgin's name was Mary. Angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Can you imagine? Just out of nowhere. Angel shows up. Greetings, favored one, the Lord's with you. Hamana, hamana, hamana. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, You think? and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 700 years before Augustus says, hey, let's count them all up. Micah says, I'm already there. Nine months before all this happens, angel delivers the message to Mary. Now, one has to wonder what in the world's going on in Mary's mind, right? You have to wonder whether or not Mary and Joseph had Micah in mind. It just, it's not there in the text, but you just wonder about the psychology of all of it. Here they are on their way to Bethlehem, pack animal with them. Who knows who else is in the entourage? And I'm wondering if there's a wise person in that group who said, you know what? Something, I, uh, uh, something somewhere. I think it was Micah who spoke the word of the Lord. Didn't he say something about Bethlehem? Isn't that where we're going right now? Bethlehem? And look at you, Mary. You're about to give birth to a child. If we were not going to Bethlehem, you'd be delivering this baby somewhere else. And then Micah, hmm. Thabiti Anyabwali has written a devotional commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and he's got this great line around this text. He says, true greatness is not always visible greatness. 
I love that line. True greatness is not always visible greatness. If there was a line that fitted this birth narrative, it's that. Here is the great one, if you please, in this out-of-the-way place, not even large enough to be considered amongst the clans of Judah. And there'll be no greater individual in the history of the world. And his kingdom will know no end. This is God's merciful providence over the powerful. So if you're anxious today over what the powerful or the perceived powerful are doing in the world today, take heart. Fear not. Man plans and God smiles. His merciful providence is at work among the Caesars some 2,000 years ago and among those similar positions to this very day. Let's look at the remaining verses and see how God's merciful providence is over the weak. Luke continues to show the good news making its way to the poor, to the humble, to those not expecting it. I've told you now each week that we're in Luke to keep your eyes tuned to that. Luke has a keen eye for the poor and for the humble. He's keen to put his gospel together to show that his, the good news of a Savior who is Christ the Lord goes to people that you would not expect it to go to. Our flesh immediately assumes that the, the, the biggest and the best and the brightest are those who deserve to hear this kind of message. And Luke just kind of turns that on its head and comes to those that we would discard, if you please especially somebody as despicable as a shepherd. In the same region, verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, the text tells us. Here, on breathtaking display, is God's merciful providence over the heavenly powerful and the earthly weak. The angel, the messenger of the Lord, uh, in verse 9, appears to the shepherds who were out watching their flocks at night, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. You know what the response is going to be. They were filled with great fear. Many of the English translations literally say they were filled with terror. Mega phobos. No, oh, there I go. I don't like doing that, but that's literally what the words are in the original language. Mega phobos. Great Fear, which is why some English translations say terror. The angel speaks, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then he goes on, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, just like it was prophesied in 169, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. For unto you, this is good news of great joy, unto you is born this day in the city of David. See, Luke is more concerned, not about the actual birth, but what the birth means. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. There are, pun intended, fewer more pregnant lines in all of Scripture than Luke 2.11. 
my, 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 underline that, do something with that if you would, for born to you this day in the city of David, fulfilling the prophecy and maintaining the line through King David, there'll be one who will sit on your throne and his kingdom will know no end. This is David's greater son. One greater than Solomon is here. He is what? His name says Jesus. And that means what? Savior. He will save his people. So he is in the line of King David. He's a savior. And who is the savior? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that fulfills the promises that God has made all the way back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he's also the Lord. Now I have your attention, especially if Caesar goes by Lord. And he's all that in one line. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And now you've got two responses. You've got a sudden, with the angel, multitude of the heavenly host. You, you need, you need, we need a sanctified imagination here. We need to allow our minds to get this. So here's this interaction out in the dark, sitting on their stones, keeping an eye on their sheep who are doing God only knows what. An angel shows up. The angel alone, probably Gabriel, terrorizes them. He says, don't fear. I've got good news of great joy for you. There's the gospel proclaimed to these poor people thought to be bandits unable to keep the ceremonial law, so they're perpetually excluded from the community of faith. And now all of a sudden, having delivered the message, this, this heavenly host surrounds them. It's like a quasar. It's like this explosion and brightness like you've never seen and never known. And you think the Mormon tabernacle choir can hit notes. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. My attempt at these four Advent messages has been around these poetic words that are set off in your text. Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's Benedictus, and now this little line here in 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. God's mercy's end goal is God's glory. And this is exactly what's happened. His mercy has been bestowed now upon priests and peasants and now shepherds. And the angelic choir fills the field, and they sing in perfect harmony, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. I need to give you a small sidebar here, uh, because uh, a lot of bad theology evolves out of 14, and, and I'm I'm somewhat saddened to say a lot of that is due to the way the King James translates this. Because most of the Christmas cards that you'll receive this year, if you receive any of all, will say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, full stop. That is not what the text says. 
It is what the KJV says. And it's unfortunate that there's a full stop. Why? Because in one sense, in one sense, it's not a bad thing to say glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. But the implication is that there's peace for everybody, regardless of what you do with this God whom we proclaim and attribute the highest glory. No, you need to continue to read glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. These are his people. He's come for those whom he has chosen from before the foundations of the earth. There's no guarantee of shalom to those who are apart from Christ. That's the message that I want to be sure you take home. And I know it's bumper sticker stuff. You know, no Christ, no peace. K-N-O-W, Christ, K-N-O-W, peace. It's a bumper sticker, but it's still good. And that's the message that's going on here. Shalom, we've been talking about. It's, it's all life-encompassing. It's not just some quiet, unanxious feeling that you might have. It incorporates your health and your relationships and your business transactions. There's nothing that shalom does not touch, which is another way of saying when you're in Christ, there's nothing that Christ does not touch in your life. And that's mercy. That's tender mercy that God shows to you. So let's be sure we get that right. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Sure, we pray for the peace of God to flow in, in, in our nation's capital. Sure, we pray for the peace of God to flow through New York City. Sure, we pray for the peace of God to be known in, in the Middle East. Sure, that's, those aren't bad prayers. But we also have to be mindful of the fact that with that prayer, we might say to the Lord, a request of the Lord, that he bring in those whom he has chosen for himself, that they may know full shalom and be broadcasters of that, if you please. I'd be remiss if we stop there. This is where we wind it down and we come to the end because it's not just the heavenly host that responds. The shepherds respond. They've seen something, and now they're going to say something. Look at what happens in verse 15 and 16. I, I love this. I put a big smile on my face when I get to these verses. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, hey, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You think? Can you imagine? The symphony goes on. They go away, and now they're standing there, and you can hear the crickets. And you can hear the, 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 and they say to one another, let's pack it up and go to Bethlehem and see what's going on. And so they do. And so they do. They go. 16. They went with haste. I would think so. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as they had been told. This brothers and sisters, is the unexpected gospel. We've got to make peace with this because there's much division in the church now over who deserves to hear the gospel. And there are certain types that are not welcomed in churches because they're dirty and because they smell or their skin is the wrong color. If the story of the birth of Christ tells us anything, it tells us that nobody 
Nobody ought to be excluded from being told the good message of great joy that has come to this world. This is the unexpected gospel to priests and prophets, to peasants and shepherds. It is, it is the mission statement of Jesus himself. In two chapters, Luke chapter 4, Jesus himself tells us what his mission statement is. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Luke chapter 4, you know the story well. He's in the synagogue, it's his custom. He's asked for the prophet Isaiah's scroll. He's, you know, this quiet in the, he's shuffling through the scroll. He's trying to find the passage in, in Isaiah the prophet. He finds it, he gets to it, and he proclaims this. Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to do what? Proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jesus' mission statement. It's the unexpected gospel. Jesus rolls up the scroll, he puts it back in the tube, he hands it to the beetle who goes and puts it back in the rack where it needs to go, and he looks at everybody on the edge of their seats and says, that is this. It's on Mary's mouth, it's on Zechariah's mouth, and a couple chapters later, it's on Jesus' mouth. The gospel does not go to the proud. Because the proud don't need good news of great joy. They're in the process of making their own good news with great joy. The gospel comes to the lowly, to the poor, to the poor in spirit. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he has confounded the ways of worldly wisdom by sending his word to those who are not powerful. James, our Lord's brother, would write in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5 says the same thing, same words, gives grace to the humble, opposes the proud. The, the whole inner circle of the first century church. Jesus leads the way, obviously, and then you've got Paul, you've got James, you've got Peter, and they're all saying the same thing. God's mercy ends in God's glory. Please hear me when I tell you that humble, humble mercy receiving ends in humble glory giving. I pray that's true of you. If you've received God's mercy humbly, that goal is to humble, humbly give glory to God. The goal of God's mercy is God's glory. In this holy Advent season, let us follow the humble model of the shepherds who saw something and said something. I merely have to read the words for you. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You see the movement? 
The heavenly host disappears. They say, let's go to Bethlehem. And they go with haste. They arrive. They see it. And then they begin to tell everybody there what had happened. And I love the way that Luke says it. All who heard wondered. Mary treasured. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. Everybody in the crowd might wonder. Mary, the mother of our Lord, treasured them. And the shepherds now become evangelists. They return, they go back home, and they can't stop gossiping the gospel, glorifying and praising God. Treasuring leads to telling. If you treasure something, if you treasure someone, you're going to tell about us. That's exactly what comes out of this. Some will just wonder. Others will treasure. And those who treasure will tell. Treasuring leads to telling. So one of my prayers for you this week has been that you will not just hear, that you will not just be one of the crowds and wonder, but that you'll be like Mary, that you'll be like the shepherds, and you'll treasure what you've heard. And then you'll go and tell. Have you seen something? then by God's mercy, say something. And let me suggest that whatever it is that you say ends with this. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom are well, with whom the Lord is well pleased. Our Father, a thousand lifetimes would not be able to give you the glory that you deserve. And yet in this beautiful passage, you've humbled us. You've humbled us by showing us how perverse our categories can be. And yet you, you continue to show us, Father, that your ways are not our ways. Father, we have seen something. I pray that you would now empower us to tell something. We cannot simply take in the wonder of this glorious season and not be moved by it. I pray that you'd move me, dear God, that you'd move my, my very soul, and that you do the same for my friends that are here today, either watching live or by way of live stream and that we might become a transformed community, a community that doesn't just stand around wondering, but a community that treasures and then tells. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.